Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I want to start out today by reminding you that you can get a free copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth in Amazon, number one bestseller, simply by going to wealthformula.com and downloading it. You can also simply text me by dialing 44222. In that text message, just put Wealth Formula, one word. Don't let the autocorrect screw you up. Again, that's 44222 and type Wealth Formula. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it easier for the rich to get richer? In other words, as they say, why is the first million the hardest? And after that, it gets easier. Well, I can tell you that I actually think the first 10 million is the hardest, but the first million is pretty hard too. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of reasons for that, and I go through them in some detail in my digital course, Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. You can check that out if you like at wealthformularoadmap.com. But one very important reason that I can tell you why the rich get richer is because, well, they have more money to invest. And now I know what you're thinking. Well, Buck, you're a genius. You figured that one out. You know, the rich can invest more money, right? So they make more money. Okay, I get it. I get it. It sounds really simple, and, and I'm making it seem like it's complex. But here's my point. If you make more money, you'll be able to allocate a higher percentage of your income towards investments rather than paying your bills, right? So, you know, say you make $50,000 per year in the city of San Francisco, $50,000 or less. That doesn't sound like very much, and it's not. And I can tell you that from personal experience because I was a surgical resident in the city of San Francisco, and when they pay you that much there, there's no money left to invest. Man, I mean, back in those days, you know, that wasn't that long ago, but 10 years ago or more, even back then, it, that was very little money, and there was no Uber or anything else that I could do to make an extra buck. So if you're at that point where you're making 50 grand a year, uh, you know, you don't have much to invest. So how are you going to get richer? On the other hand, if you make a, a few million dollars per year, well, unless you're, you know, a little excessive, covering your expenses shouldn't be that hard. And most of that cash, well, then you could use it potentially to create more wealth, to invest it, right? So that's what I mean, and that's what they mean when they say that the first million is the hardest and that the rich get richer. It's true, but it's not a mystery why. They just have more money to invest. So when you have lots of money, when you have lots of money to invest or a higher percentage of your salary or income or whatever it is to invest, you can use that money to buy things like real estate. You can buy businesses. You could buy precious metals, even life settlements is as you know, I'm a, a fan of in this kind of economy in particular. And because you can spare a few bucks, and you and it's not a big deal if you lose a little bit, you might even allocate some money towards investments that might be, well, let's say highly speculative. Now, speculation, in fact, in my opinion, is not a four-letter word. And if you do it in a calculated way, I don't actually consider it gambling. Right? A lot of people say speculation is gambling. Well, not really. I actually consider the type of speculation that I do as asymmetric risk. Right, These investments involved asymmetric risk. What do I mean by that? 
Well, an asymmetric risk investment or bet is where the upside is several orders of magnitude higher than the downside. And even if that downside means that you lose your entire investment, right? For me, this is what I call Maserati money. I like Maseratis, but I can either buy a Maserati and guarantee that I will never see that cash again, or I can take a shot down the field with an asymmetric bet that has a chance to create transformational wealth. Now, what is transformational money anyway? Well, to me, an easy way to think about what could be transformational is to simply add a zero to your current net worth. Now, unless you're starting out as a billionaire, that number will transform your life, right? Now, rich people do this all the time. And I've talked about this before on this show, but look at the Winklevoss twins. Remember the Facebook twins that sued Mark Zuckerberg? You know, they took a substantial gamble. They bought a bunch of Bitcoin before everybody else. And they went from being simply guys who were, you know, poor eight-figure <laughs> mid-eight-figure or maybe nine-figure guys to becoming billionaires. Now, what if you could go from six to seven figures or even seven to eight figures or whatever, wherever you are, just add a zero? Would that change your life? So adding a zero would change my life for sure. Um, in fact, it would even potentially be enough for me to give up my Toyota and once and for all buy a Maserati or uh, in fact, what I really would like is one of those classic Ferraris. And in fact, you know, if you buy classic cars, I should point out that it may actually be an investment. So I've been thinking more and more that rather than buying a new fancy car, maybe I would buy an old one, like a, you know, like a Ferrari Dino or something like that someday. And, and that way I know that I'm actually gaining value. Now that's interesting, right? Anyway, my problem right now is that I'm cheap. You see, a lot of people who make a lot less than me drive very expensive cars, but I just can't do it. I'd rather, I'd rather invest in things. It's really exciting for me. That's like my, uh, as Mark Podolsky called it, man jewelry, right? I like, I like investing in stuff. I like owning stuff. That's what really gets me excited. Anyway, let's go back to that idea of the asymmetric trade. What is my asymmetric trade these days? Well, if you listen to me regularly, you know that I am a cryptocurrency enthusiast. In fact, right now, these days, I'm allocating a full 10% of my investable assets into distributed ledger technology. Why? Because I truly believe that this is the biggest opportunity to create transformational wealth that I will ever see in my lifetime. And, and it's because the technology is so transformational that it will change everything. And we are investors, right? So this is not betting on a horse. That's not really what this is. This is betting on a technology. This is seeing something. This is seeing the internet before the internet was widespread. This is, you know, seeing Google, seeing, seeing search before Google was around and, and understanding that that's what distributed ledger technology is right now. Pretty soon it's going to be pervasive. It's going to be part of everything we do. Now, as an investor, doesn't that sound kind of interesting? Well, it does for me. And I truly believe that this opportunity in distributed ledger technology is exciting and also offers us as investors an opportunity to perhaps be the moment in which we can create transformational wealth that we may not ever see again in our lifetime. Now, I am not exaggerating. I really believe that. In fact, I've been obsessed with what's going on in this world of distributed ledger technology for over a year now, and I've already made uh, some significant profits in some projects that I really believe in. Uh, you may also know that I have my own cryptocurrency fund. It's not open or anything, which you know. I but I believe it's positioned very well to benefit uh, from what I anticipate to be trillions of dollars about to hit this market. Now, if you are brand new to cryptocurrency, it might be a good idea uh, that before you listen to this podcast, uh, you go back and listen to my introductory podcast on cryptocurrency. 
uh, on these topics uh, that I did these shows with uh, Palm Beach Confidential editor Tika Tawari, and those are episodes 86 and 104 of Wealth Formula Podcast. So make sure you check those out if you are brand new to the show. Uh, you don't have to, but it might help with this one because it gets a little bit more uh, involved. Because today I'm going to introduce you to a project that I believe represents the future of distributed ledger technology. I have been following this project, this company called Swirls, and their uh, project Hashgraph, since I first learned about cryptocurrency. In fact, a friend of mine uh, who is an insider in this world, who I have a lot of, uh, who's just a really good guy and um, has has really you know helped me learn the insides of this and got me started, tipped me off to this project over a year ago. And since then, I've studied it, I've followed its progress closely, and I have come to the conclusion, my personal conclusion, that Hashgraph is indeed the next generation of distributed ledger technology. It solves all of the problems of blockchain projects right now, uh, the big ones such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, all these issues that they're having, this solves them all. So it is like the next generation. And it may be for that reason. In fact, it is for that reason that many have referred to Hashgraph as the quote-unquote Bitcoin killer. Now, that's kind of simplified, I think, a little bit because, you know, it's not just about Bitcoin um, and it's not just about currency. This is about technology. Actually, the reason that this technology is so good, though, is because of its efficiencies and because it's better than what's currently there. And because of that, it serves as an existential threat to blockchain ledgers such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Again, if this terminology is confusing, go back and listen to episodes 86 and 104 of Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, here's the good news. It's not too late to invest in distributed ledger technology in general. And in fact, it's not too late to invest in Hashgraph. In fact, the Hashgraph public ledger and its token, Hedera, will not be even circulating until later this year. They don't, they're not something you could just go out and buy yet. They're not even available. So my point is, by listening to this podcast, you are way ahead of the game. You are way ahead of, you know, 99.9999% of the world. And while this uh, should not be construed as investment advice, right? Because I am not an investment advisor. <laughs> not that I would ever listen to an investment advisor anyway, but I'm not one of those. I would highly suggest you pay careful attention to my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast today. When we come back, you're going to hear from a guy that a lot more people in the world will know about a year from now, two years from now, and maybe even 10 years from now. It is the Hashgraph co-founder and CEO, Mance Harmon. When we come back, a discussion with Mance Harmon on Hedera Hashgraph. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everyone. Today, it is a real pleasure for me to welcome my guest, Mance Harmon, onto Wealth Formula Podcast. 
He is one half of the dynamic duo, along with Lemon Beard, behind Swirl's Hashgraph, which recently introduced its plans for a public ledger that will be known as Hedera Hashgraph. Now, I've been following this project for a good year, year and a half, and I am convinced it will change everything in this distributed technology world. Mance, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your interest. Yeah, this is super exciting for me. Now, Mance, we're going to start out a little broad because not everybody listening is a super pro, you know, distributed ledger crypto person. So first, let's just start out with you. I mean, what were you and uh, Lehman Baird doing uh, before Satoshi Nakamoto and and all of this Bitcoin nonsense, <laughs> and I, I yes. say that tongue in cheek, of course. But how, how did you get? How did you get together? And how did you go on this journey? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that Lehman and I have been working together literally for 25 years. Uh-huh. We uh, met as young officers in the U.S. Air Force doing basic research in machine learning for the senior scientist for machine intelligence in in the Air Force. And so our background originally started just in basic research, always been really high tech, machine learning before machine learning was cool yeah. sort of sort of thing. Right. We then taught computer science at the academy. Uh, I was a course director for cybersecurity, managed a massive software program for the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, basically, it was a war game simulator that allows the U.S. government and its allies to figure out how to protect its citizens from incoming ballistic missiles. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is of interest today, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, decided we wanted to be entrepreneurs. And so I left the military and we started our first company in the field of identity and sold that to a Fortune 500. I became the senior exec for product security in that organization. We decided let's do it again. <laughs> so we started our second company and sold that to private equity six and a half years later. Lehman then decided he had an interest in this space, not necessarily Bitcoin, but this notion of changing the way the internet works and from, from being sort of centralized where we're all using the same server run by the same organization. You know, Amazon is running its servers, Facebook runs its servers, Google runs its servers, and we all consume services from those organizations. Instead of that model, he wanted to be able to eliminate the need for the central uh, organization, but have the same capability. And there's some fundamental reasons for that. But he started this in 2012, this idea in 2012 of trying to achieve that vision. And I went to work for another identity company, Ping Identity, as the head of labs and architecture. In 2015, he had this major breakthrough. And of course, today, that is what we call the hash graph. Yep, yep. We decided to commercialize it. I mean, the market timing was perfect for his innovation. And uh, Ping made the first investment to kick things off. And, uh, you know, here we are now three years later, and we, uh, we, we're going to market with Hedera, which is this public network built on the Hashgraph technology. But, so we've been working together a long time, yeah, always yeah. deep tech. Now, when was Lehman when he when he got interested in this? Was he actually was he thinking about this before before Bitcoin and the Nakamoto paper? Was he kind of was this already on his mind? No, I wouldn't say he was thinking about it before the Nakamoto paper. He really took serious interest in in 2012. That's when he started mm-hmm. actually spending a lot of hours trying sure. to find a a solution to the problem. However, having said that, Bitcoin was never really the answer, and yeah. he knew that yeah. from the very <clears throat> beginning. And so it, it's not the case that Bitcoin or blockchain as a technology has influenced uh, what he's created in Hashgraph. They look entirely different yep. from each other. Yep. And so, so he, of course, knew what was going on in the market, but it wasn't it wasn't something that influenced where he started or where we ended up. Got it. So let's, you know, for for those in the audience who are not as versed, again, just in general, on this idea of distributed ledger technology. Now, Lehman, you're talking to doctors, lawyers, software engineers, you know, people who are, well, maybe the software engineers are a little bit more uh, 
uh, smarter than the rest of us. But for those who have really not engaged with this technology yet, in your words, how do you describe the significance just in general of how distributed ledger technology is going to change the world? Yeah. Well, look, I think there's a really simple way of describing this that everyone appreciates, and and that is fundamentally this is a new type of database. Historically, you have a database run by an organization, and maybe there are multiple copies of that same database, and they're all being used by lots of people at the same time. It's the same data in each copy, and sometimes two different people will write to the same location in the database on two different computers, and that's what we call a write conflict. And we have to come to agreement about which one of those writes happened first so that all the databases in this cluster is what it would be called, stay in sync. They can stay in sync. All the write transactions have to happen in the same order for for them all to stay in sync. What's different here about what we're doing today is that Historically, one company has run that cluster of databases. Amazon has its cluster of databases. They have complete control over all of those databases. And they would never consider giving Google a copy or one of those one of those database instances to mm-hmm. run on behalf of Amazon. They wouldn't let Google run one of their databases. Yeah. Because Google maybe could do bad things. You know, they could change the order of information or prevent the network from 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 converging so the databases all stay in sync or other other attacks. What was demonstrated for the first time with Bitcoin in the most general sense is a capability where we can in fact give away instances of this shared database to different people outside of our organization and in fact we may not even know who they are so we can have a lot of different parties all running a local copy of a database it's a it's a replicated database it's the same database that we're all running and we can come to an agreement on the order of transactions so that all of these databases will stay in sync and we can do it securely and that's the most important piece we can do this securely in a way that I know that some person running a copy of the database anonymously, unknown to me, their identity or who they are, they can't change the order of transactions or do things that cause right. cause problems for me. That's fundamentally yeah. the innovation here. And, and you're effectively, from the standpoint of enterprise, uh, you know, any kind of Facebook or Uber or whatever, you are in the process of eliminating the middleman, right? I mean, you are making it so that there's a direct inter- direct interaction between participants rather than requiring that there be a centralized, um, you know, big brother sort of figure that can maybe sell your data, can look at what you're doing and control everything. Is that effectively? That, that's it? exactly right. right. You right. know, and a good way of describing this uh, that you can just sort of appreciate immediately is let's pretend that we have a, a game, a multiplayer game. And, you know, a dozen of my friends and I are all online playing this multiplayer game. Well, normally there's a central database that we're all connecting to. And when I make a move in my environment, that database makes it so that everybody else can see the changes I've made. And, and that central organization enforces the rules so that we can't cheat in, uh, in the game. What we're doing here is putting that a copy of that database that describes our environment in total on the computer of each one of the players, but then the players communicate directly with one another instead of going through that central server. And the math just ensures that I can't cheat right? and that the databases stay in sync. It's still the same game. Yep. It still looks and feels the same to those that are using the game, but there's no central server that's serving as the referee. We've yeah. eliminated the need for central servers. Yeah, or banks, right? <laughs> or banks, <laughs> maybe so. Right, maybe right. So. Um, so let's let's talk. Let's get into a little bit more specifics here. Now we kind of have a broad idea of it, this whole distributed ledger technology is. So this paper that we're talking about 
came out. Uh, Nakamoto was it 2009 or something? Uh, the paper came out in 2008, and the 2000. code base in 2009. Right. Yeah. And this this ultimately led to uh, Bitcoin and uh, blockchain, which is one type of distributed ledger technology. And fundamentally, from there, for the most part, this world has grown on different types of blockchain technology. Now. Mm. Where you guys come in is where you say, well, there are some fundamental flaws or weaknesses in this idea of blockchain as the type of distributed ledger that can really scale into something that's going to change the world. What are those limitations? Yeah, well, the first limitation is even described in the name. It's a chain. So each... Uh, member in the community has a local copy of this chain of blocks of transactions. And remember, this is a database system fundamentally. And so when we make changes to the database, those are the transactions and they have to go to everybody. And if you have a chain of blocks of transactions, then the community can only decide on what block goes on top of the chain one block at a time. In our case, we don't have a chain. We have something that is described in you know the world of math as a graph. But effectively what that means is that each member of the community, when they have a transaction, a change to the database, they can just submit that transaction at will to the, the network. And we weave all those transactions together in this graph. And we're basically processing all that information in parallel instead of serially in a chain. And so the architecture of blockchain is self-limiting in that you can only process in serial, you know, one at a time, as opposed to processing everything in parallel, that, like what we do in Hashgraph. And so there's a huge performance difference uh, because of this. Performance in terms of the time it takes for transactions in terms of energy consumption, right? If you're doing, in the case of Bitcoin, it's these, in order to process these things, there are these massive uh, computational things that happen with computers. But I heard something like uh, it, it, it takes uh, the entire energy of Ireland's consumption to, to operate Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. You're right. Uh, so, something on that order. That's certainly true. So correct, it takes an enormous amount of energy and the performance is, is terrible. And, and what I mean by that is this. If we have a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, globally, Bitcoin can handle five transactions per second. So if Alice wants to pay Bob a coin, that is a transaction, right? And so five transactions per second is peanuts compared to what's required. What we're able to do with Hashgraph, because we're doing this in parallel and our mechanism is fundamentally different than, than Bitcoin, we can do hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. And there's no need to burn all of that electricity. Uh, we, we work fundamentally different uh, than Bitcoin and, and the mining rigs that some of your listeners probably have heard about. There's no need for these expensive computers just to solve a hard crypto puzzle to to make the system work, we've eliminated that requirement entirely. So it's really the difference between a calculator and what you can do with a calculator in terms of applications and a computer. And you know the the number of applications or range of applications that you can perform on a computer. It's that level of leap from where we started with Bitcoin to where we now are with Hashgraph. So you knew, you mentioned with, with Bitcoin, you've got about, uh, I think, uh, would you say about 10 transactions per second? And then I think Ethereum, um, from an application standpoint, uh, is about 25 applica uh, uh, transaction per second. You guys did some testing, and it was pretty spectacular. I, I was watching the at home, I was watching your presentation on Hedera. Can you t talk to us a little bit sure. about the performance that you guys were seeing? And then is there, you may also mention if there's anything that even comes close to this out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what we presented on stage, we had, a, we had a, an event in New York City back in early March where we introduced the world for the first time to Hedera as an organization to build this public platform. Um, 
And what we announced from stage were performance results on a global network, eight data centers uh, and all the major continents where we were able to achieve 100,000 transactions per second with something uh, called consensus latency of 3.4 seconds. Consensus latency is just the amount of time it takes for the transactions to become final. So, for example, in, in the world of, um, you know, credit cards, when you swipe your card at the point of sale system, uh, the terms of service by the card hold, uh, issuers is that it, you have to get an answer back on whether that card is, is good, you can use it, in seven seconds or less. Right. And Visa, as a network, <laughs> surges to about 57, 58,000 transactions per second. On average, it's about 2,000 transactions per second. We were able to achieve better than Visa performance at scale, you know, 100,000 transactions per second sustained, not surge, with three seconds of consensus latency. In other words, you could use this as a, as a Visa equivalent, and, um, and, and that's where we're starting. So, yeah, right. Uh, and how does that compare to some of the other projects? So we know we do have, you know, some other things like, you know, EOS and, you know, some of these sure. other projects that are coming up. Are they, I mean, they've got, I mean, no, they're better, but I don't know if they're getting Yeah, well, yet. no, they, they're significantly better than right. the first generation blockchain systems like what's being used by Bitcoin and first generation uh, Ethereum. The, the problem is that, these platforms haven't published a lot of results yet. We're still fairly early, but what I can share with you is that the best performance I've seen uh, is about seven or eight thousand transactions per second. And maybe they'll yeah. do better. Maybe it'll be ten thousand yeah. transactions per second. I don't know. But there is um, there's this trade-off between the level of security that you have and the performance that you can achieve. Historically, there's been this trade-off. If you want better security, then you have to reduce performance. Or if you want better performance, you have to reduce security. And in our case, what we've been able to achieve uniquely in the market is the best security that one can achieve at the algorithm level, at the hash graph level. Theoretically possible. You can't do any better. And at the same time, the best performance. And and that is unique, um, and I haven't seen anybody yeah. else in the market yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the applications that, with Hashgraph, um, with with Hedera, maybe in particular, when people are starting to to take this? I know we've got some projects I've seen already. There's uh, uh, Satori, um, yep. you know, some of these other ones. Can you talk about some of the applications that are out there that may not have been possible with the blockchain uh, platforms that are now possible yeah. potentially with with uh, Hedera. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to. I think the first killer application is going to be the ability to have micropayments natively on the graph. Everybody understands, in in, in my industry anyway, everybody understands the value of micro uh, payments. And let me just say explicitly what I mean with a micropayment. I'm not talking necessarily about making a payment of 10 cents. Uh, you know, Alice wants to pay Bob 10 cents. That maybe is a small payment. A micropayment is Alice paying Bob a thousandth of a penny, right? There haven't been mechanisms or infrastructure in place that makes it possible for Alice to pay Bob a thousandth of a penny without paying fees that are way beyond a thousandth of a penny. So practically, you can do this hypothetically, but the fees associated, uh, you know, will be measured in pennies or dimes or or dollars. And so you would just never, you would never pay a thousandth of a penny. But when we can achieve that, and we will achieve that with Hashgraph, entirely new business models open up. So, for example, every January, uh, if you use the internet at all, you go to Wikipedia. You get that notice from the Wikimedia Foundation asking you to donate three dollars to the to the foundation to support right. Wikimedia. Right. Well, if my web browser has a a cryptocurrency wallet embedded in it with some coin in the wallet, when I am browsing wiki articles, 
for each article I read, I could pay a thousandth of a penny. Right. And I would never see it. It would be frictionless. And the <clears throat> Wikimedia Foundation has a sustainable revenue model that probably pays them more than they're making today. Yeah. This is just one example. Right. And right. so I think entirely new business models will open up with micropayments. I think IoT, the Internet of Things, as a category, will not reach its potential uh, without this technology. And you know what I envision is a world in which things are engaging other things to perform services for each other and uh, and they make payment for those services using the cryptocurrency and to make it very practical, a, a, a specific example maybe is that I have my light bulbs that are things in this, you know, the world of internet mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. And when a light bulb burns out, uh, it makes it possible for Amazon and Walmart and any other retail, maybe Target, any other retailer that I've given permission to, to discover the fact that my light bulb has burnt out and then to bid on the opportunity to replace those light bulbs and then have the, the winner of that bid, this marketplace, automatically ship me the replacement light bulbs. Well, what? this all requires this infrastructure that we're now building. And, and is it that, is it this in, in particular, the, the value of Hedera or Hashgraph in general, there as opposed to the other blockchain, it's the speed. It's the performance that allows that those types of things to happen, correct? For, it's, it's two things. You're right. The speed is absolutely critical. The ability to make payments um, on chain or on graph in this case so, so that they're securely achieved is important. But then finally, there's this, there's this property that we haven't talked about that's called fairness. It just means that there's no opportunity for one party to to influence the order of transactions, but this fairness property is important for markets. And that's what I'm describing here. It becomes yeah. possible to have markets built on top of the Hedera platform that are supported by the cryptocurrency and the smart contracts and the performance that makes it possible for things to engage other things and engage in commerce. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even think about some of these uh, hedge funds that the whole business model is to just you know scoot in front of the the trade they already know is going through and make the trade ahead of time and then <laughs> so, right, so right, this is right. one of those things so um now let's go back to this idea you know hashgraph has gotten a lot of press in the last year and whenever you see it on forbes or whatever they always describe it as the bitcoin killer you know um you know it, it, it and i don't think that that's really the idea here because obviously there's also I mean, you guys are really into applications as well. I mean, uh, certainly currency as well. But how do you see this? How do you see, um, w w I guess, being as diplomatic as possible to sure. do, how does how do you and, and Lehman really see this technology affecting blockchain in general? There's a lot. I mean, yeah. most of this world is built on the blockchain. Is yeah. this something that replaces? Is this something that coexists? How do you see this happening in the future? Yeah, well, several thoughts there. Um, when it comes to Bitcoin in particular, right, there's enormous momentum behind Bitcoin. You, you know, major banks are now talking about opening trading desks for Bitcoin. There will be ETFs that will hit the market. Institutional money will flow into cryptocurrencies generally, but they're going to start with the most prominent, which of course today is Bitcoin. And right. so Bitcoin, who knows what's going to happen in the long term with Bitcoin, but I suspect in the short term, Bitcoin is, is here for a while. And when the institutional money hits, I would expect that to have a, you know, potentially a dramatic effect on the value of Bitcoin as, as uh, you know, as a particular instrument. Now, when we're talking about technology, that's a different issue, right? Right. Um, when we're comparing Hashgraph as an algorithm to blockchain as an algorithm or a piece of technology, absolutely, I believe blockchain will diminish and eventually fade away. And, and Hashgraph and maybe other approaches as well will significantly gain market share and uh, will be the next generation. That's not to say 
that any given company or platform built on blockchain will die. It, if there's a way for them to migrate from sort of first generation blockchain to a new technology that doesn't have the, uh, you know, the, the performance and security constraints, you know, the limitations of blockchain, then maybe they'll be able to navigate those waters. But but in terms purely of the technology, uh, blockchain will diminish and, and Hashgraph yeah. will increase. So this is this is uh, something just so the listeners don't, and tell me if I'm correct in this, but the way I've seen Bitcoin is, listen, I'll, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is a storage of value. That's all its real purpose is. It's not something that you build applications on. So to me, if you're really going to call Hashgraph a killer of anything, it's probably an Ethereum killer, uh, or you know, because pretty much every application up to today has been built on uh, Ethereum because that's been you know the one that has been around the longest for this purpose. So Hashgraph sort of gets in that game along with you know some of these other second generation uh, blockchains like like EOS and, and, and NEO and that sort of thing. So this may be sort of the third generation of that. Is that, is that a fair assessment of kind of what you're thinking? It's, it's more on the application side. Or maybe you also see it as, in the long term, also being a storage of value as well. Um, we certainly didn't start with that in mind, right? We, we started with a vision of making it possible for... Uh, people to carve out a piece of cyberspace and within that piece of cyberspace play games together and to work together with business apps and to engage in commerce with, for goods and services without the need to, to compromise their data or privacy to a central organization. That was the vision. It's still the vision. And what that necessarily means is that we're building a platform that can support distributed applications. And, uh, you know, if it's the case that the cryptocurrency associated with this platform at some point becomes a store of value, uh, you, you know, maybe that will happen. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. That's, not, uh, that's not a driving motivation. It's not even something we really think about. Sure. So let's talk about this in terms of uh, Hashgraph in particular. Right now there's two platforms, right? One is the private one. Uh, and then there's the new public ledger. So, and that w will issue the Hedera token. That's effectively sort of the equivalent of what Ethereum does. Now, can you talk a little bit about the difference, the purpose of having a private and a public ledger, and ultimately how that will affect, you know, will these be competing with one another? I mean, how, how, does, how do you see all these playing out? Yeah, so we started with Swirls, as you'd mentioned, and Swirls as a company was and continues to be focused on permissioned networks. The distinction here is when you have the network, there are nodes in the network, they, each node has a copy of the database and they're voting on the order of transactions. And the question is, can anybody just download the software and put it on their computer and participate as, in the node, as a node in the network? Or do they need to get permission from some central organization, some central governing body to participate as a node in the network. In that case, it's called a private network. Uh, and and the, you know the best examples of this are maybe a group of banks are getting together to create their private permission right. network for distributed consensus. It, and we started there. We built enterprise-grade software for enterprise applications. We've always viewed what we're doing as being the most secure the most performance solution in the network, so the bank-grade solution, in other words, or enterprise-grade solution. And we, we didn't even think about the public network until we had gotten some market validation of what we were doing. And, uh, and so we waited. We actually waited a couple of years before really beginning to, to pursue the public network. The public network, of course, is Hedera. And we spun Hedera out of Swirls last fall operated in stealth until March of this year and introduced the world to Hedera. Hedera is chartered with taking the Hashgraph algorithm, the same technology we built for the enterprises as the base layer, and then adding some services on top to create this public network. And those services are the <clears throat> cryptocurrency service, 
smart contracts and we've taken the Ethereum virtual machine that runs Solidity scripts and put that directly on top of Hashgraph, our, our platform. So we got backward compatibility for the world of Solidity scripts and then distributed file storage. And then that's needed for a variety of reasons as well. But if you're building, if you're an application developer, building a an application and you want it to run on this public network, you can just do so without license. It's not, uh, it's not a, there's no license required like maybe there would be in a permission network. So they're at different markets. The applications themselves, in some cases, they overlap. You could build an application either on a public network or on a private or permission network. But often it's the case that it's pretty clear whether you want to use one or the other. I mean, a public network is public in more than just anybody can run a node. It's that data is replicated on hundreds, if not thousands of nodes all around the world, and you don't know who are running those nodes. Right. And so it's not the case that you would put, you know, PII or privacy information that's observable in the public network. You would do just the opposite. You would encrypt it or hide it or not use a public network at all. You would put that kind of information in a permission network, so as an example. So if banks were wanting to use the technology, they would use, and I'm just trying to understand this a little bit more. They would, they would probably go to Swirls and license out, you know, a private, uh, the private version, as opposed to going to the public ledger. And then the public ledger would be more for, say, you know, somebody who's trying to come up with a replacement for Uber or for, you know, or or is that is that kind of what you're thinking? I think that's pretty close. Yeah. I think that's pretty close. So the the credit union industry in North America was Swirl's first enterprise customer. And, and the reason I mention them is that they have a range of use cases that they are pursuing that are only in the permission network, the private network. But then at the same time, uh, they've announced that they are going to use the public network for cross-border payments and remittances, right? So uh, in their case, they have a set of use cases that are appropriate for permissioned and they won't use in the public world. And, and then, of course, with the cryptocurrency, there's a whole range of use cases that they care about that they can't achieve with the permissioned network or they don't want to use a permission network to achieve. And so uh, but yes, the public, you know, the consumer facing applications like the creation of a distributed Uber or. Uh, you know, a distributed Airbnb or uh, games, you you know, a distributed multiplayer game. They're, you know, different use cases for different. Yeah, that's making, that's starting, and sorry to belabor the point, but that's been one of the confusing things for me is trying to understand that. But the the private would be more like you already know who you want to communicate with and you already, uh, and you're just making that more efficient. And then the public ledger would be more outward facing, you don't, there's new people coming in all the time, and so that's where you would use a public because now you don't know who all the users are, right? <laughs> you don't know who all the users No, that's exactly right. right. Okay. Um, this, this network uh, is made up of nodes that you know are anonymous right. pretty much right. to, to each other, mutually anonymous. And so uh, you'll end up using different networks for the different things. If we talk about a game, just to, you know, 30 seconds here, sure. with the multiplayer game, if you have 10 guys or, or guys and girls, you know, running a game where they are um, playing in this closed environment with each other, having a network of 10 computers is going to be way faster, far more performant than a public network or a large permission network. But you may end up having pockets of, these little small networks, thousands of them scattered around the globe where they're all permissioned networks of 10 or 12 members. But then they use the public network for keeping track of the game resources across the entire planet. And so mm-hmm. there is a fixed number of coins, for example, that all of the subnetworks are competing for. It's scarcity, you know, scarce resources are tracked and maintained in a public network where the permission network uh, are used for local play of, of the games themselves. Got it, got it. Let's uh, want to talk uh, briefly about this. There's a little bit of a, a controversy, if you will, in this whole uh, uh, cryptocurrency world 
the one thing that I hear people um, talk about is the idea that that Hedera in particular, Hashgraph, is patented. It's and, and whereas most of cryptocurrency is open source, meaning the code can be manipulated. Somebody can take that code, kind of change it a little bit, and fork off and create their own project, their own coin. For example, you have Ethereum to Ethereum Classic, that kind of thing. You can't do that with Hashgraph because of the patent. So some of the people who are purists in the space sure. who are yep. who you know believe in that that's almost attacking the entire notion of decentralization, the notion of you know this whole ethos of cryptocurrency. How do you how do you address that? And you know, I'm sure you guys yeah. have thought about this quite a bit, and I'd love to get your your take. Sure, sure. No, well, look, this this is one of the very first things that we thought about right. <laughs> years ago, right? A lot of thought has gone into this, and what we recognize just by observation is that this market, if we think about open source, historically, open source platforms have uh, have have served the community well in that the community members will contribute their best ideas to a common baseline. And the community as a community had an interest in ensuring that that baseline stays a common baseline. When you combine that, this open source notion with a cryptocurrency, the incentive structures are changed in subtle ways that now don't necessarily encur uh, encourage the members of the community to maintain a common baseline. In fact, it's just the opposite mm -hmm. in many cases. <clears throat> what we see is a proliferation of hard forks uh, where the new baseline, the new competing platform doesn't add a lot of value over the old competing platform. It's just there because some guys maybe are going to make a gazillion dollars from creating a new cryptocurrency right, off the old right. platform. So the but and that's okay except in the case where mainstream uh, business managers who are considering spending a lot of money to build an enterprise application on top of one of these public platforms don't do it because of the risks associated with the hard fork. So if I'm a business manager, I'm considering spending $2 million on an enterprise application on top of one of the major public platforms. The one thing I know, and probably everybody in the community knows, is that public platform is highly likely to split into a competing platform and associated cryptocurrency. That represents risk to me as a business manager, and it prevents mm -hmm. me from pulling the trigger on that expenditure in many cases. And so what we want is to both maintain the best aspects of open source with the stability that is needed to cause mainstream adoption of, of the platform. And what that means necessarily in our case is that we're maintaining open innovation. There's no license that's required to use the software. It's just the same as Ethereum or EOS or anybody else that is going to be in the market. If you want to use the platform, you use it and you pay for its use using the platform token. No, no different there. So it's open innovation. We also will have transparency in the code base. With version one, we will release the software for the world to see. They'll be able to read every line of code. If they want to compile it and compare it to the node software that they download to know that we're not you know, we're being dishonest anyway, they'll be able to do that. So full transparency. <clears throat> but what we are doing is using the patent as a governance tool in a defensive way to make a promise to the market that we will not let our platform split or fork into a competing platform and associated cryptocurrency. In other words, we're guaranteeing stability to the mainstream market that others can't. In fact, this is new in the industry. We're bringing in an option to the developer community that didn't previously exist. Yeah. So, what have you noticed? Enterprise level organizations resonating with this has has it been received the way that you thought it would? Yeah. In fact, it's been more. It's been well received beyond what I thought it would. Yeah. Um, there are those developers that will <clears throat> never develop on top of us because we won't allow the platform to fork. And I can sympathize and appreciate 
their position, right? Some right. developers, if they don't like the direction that we're taking the platform in terms of features, they want the ability to fork it and go make their own changes to the platform. And, and if that's their concern, then they shouldn't use us. They yeah. should use, you know, any one of the other dozens of platforms out there. <clears throat> but there also is a large number of developers that are never going to make changes to the platform itself. All they want to know is that that platform is going to be stable and they trust the organization that's running it and that um, they, you know, they can build their enterprise app without fear of the instability of, of a hard fork. Just uh, quickly, I want to, I know we're, we're running a little, I don't want to take too much of your time, but can you tell us a little bit about the council, the, the entire Hedera council you developed and the purpose of that and what that's all about? Sure, sure. Well, so when thinking about what the governing body should look like for this public network, what we wanted was a governance body that represents all constituencies. We wanted the most inclusive, decentralized governing body of any of the public platforms. And so what we did was create a council of 39 members. We're in the process of creating this council now. We have commitments from more than half of the 39. And these are the largest organizations in the world by market cap and by brand equity. These are the most trusted brands in the market today. It's not a bunch of banks. There are a few banks, but there are 18 sectors of business that are represented by this council. And again, it's not centralized in one geography. It's, it's representing all the major markets around the globe. We have membership today from Australia, from Asia, from, of course, the United States, from Europe, from India. We are expecting in the short term to pick up members from the Middle East, from Africa, and from South America. And so by design, this organization is going to have oversight of, of Hedera, the, the, the organization, at, at the subcommittee level. For example, there will be a finance committee, and we will pull expertise from the world's best economists, you know, where it exists in our in our council to participate on this finance committee that helps us establish pricing for the API calls, the rates that we pay to the nodes in the network. There will be expertise from the tech giants in our product roadmap from a technical perspective. Mm -hmm. There will be expertise in legal and regulatory uh, from some of the world's largest global law firms, right? This is designed to be uh, unique in the market. I've not seen anything else like it. All the other platforms, for example, maybe the decisions that are being made are, are being made by core developers or with influence from the miners. Maybe there's mm -hmm. a foundation of a half dozen members. Maybe there's a single company with five or six owners of that company. We believe this is the most decentralized, uh, inclusive uh, governing body of any of the public platforms. Got it. So um, how is this all rolling out? What's the timeline, the map here in terms of when does Hedera go live? Uh, when will we start seeing, uh, when does this become reality? Yeah, well, so we're, we're feature complete this month for version one. And we already have our first beta customers lined up to begin developing code on our test networks uh, by the end of this month. And so it's uh, it's moving along nicely. The expectation is that we will harden the platform through the summer and we will gradually open it up to more and more beta customer partners. We will also have hackathons around the globe. And, and for those developers that come to the hackathons, they will get access to this public network at the hackathons and, and then subsequently. And then later in the year, in fall, we will get to a point where we, we feel we're ready for general availability. Version 1 is expected by the end of the year. Got it. So would that be – so right now there's an investing round of pre-sale. I know there's not going to be an ICO. Is that largely institutional money, or is there also accredited investors going to get an opportunity for this? How's that going to work? Yeah. As of today, <clears throat> we are in an institutional round. 
and uh, I expect that to close in, in the near future. And then we do expect to have a, an accredited crowd sale, if you will, mm-hmm. with much lower caps, men's, men's and max, much lower men's and max uh, on the investment uh, range. Sure. And I would expect that to happen by the end of summer. In addition to that, we are coming out with a program that makes it possible for the developer community to basically help us test the network. We will give the developers that register with us a set of tools that they then use to help us harden the platform and and test the network. And in exchange for their services, we will give them tokens, platform tokens. Got it. So So we expect all that to happen in in the summertime. So sometime in Q4, we should expect there is people who own Hedera tokens. Is that Yes, I would say that's true. That sounds great. Well, um, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I want to say thank you very much for your time today. Where can we go to learn more about Hashgraph and what you guys are doing? So Hashgraph.com or HederaHashgraph.com, they both resolve to the same website. You can read an awful lot about us there. There is a white paper, of course, that describes all of this in a lot more detail. And uh, for those that are on Telegram, we have a Telegram channel. I don't know how many people are on it today. You know, 35,000. Like 35, I'm on there. So it's about 35,000. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there are a lot of people yeah. there. Um, but, but for the meat of, of what we're doing, Hashgraph.com, we have a Medium channel as well for, for official announcements and that sort of thing. And you can register to yeah. receive a, a newsletter uh, on Hashgraph.com as well. Fantastic. Thanks again, Mance. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Now, I imagine that you have got a sense of why I'm so excited about this project now. I mean, this is this is a, uh, you know, like, like Mance said, I think this is a top three cryptocurrency, you know, a year from now, maybe two years from now. It, 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 does, it does depend a little bit on how quickly, you know, the, the it, it picks up in terms of public knowledge, but the reality is that there's a lot of hype about this project already, probably more so than any other project out there that I'm aware of. So so definitely, uh, if it's of interest to you, I would check it out. Uh, go to the Hashgraph website, sign up for their newsletter. Also, I don't know if you know what Telegram is, but Telegram is the app, uh, which I would call the unofficial app of the crypto community. I really didn't know about it until I got involved with crypto over a year ago now, but but it is really where all the projects make all their announcements. It's really where you get a lot of the information. Now, I have been getting a lot of emails, by the way, but asking me about my thoughts on various emerging projects and you know what I might be uh, investing in myself. Now, people who have invested in my my crypto hedge fund that I have already know what we're allocated in. So. So that gives you most of the information that you need right there for those people who are in it. But the fund is not open. It is, uh, it's, you know, it's just ready to go. It's, I think we're positioned very well for, for the oncoming um, onslaught of institutional money. But there is a, another way that you can get involved uh, with what I'm thinking about crypto and crypto picks, and that is through uh, Wealth Formula Network. That is our private community. Currently, the way that Wealth Formula Network is available is if you sign up for my course at WealthFormulaRoadmap.com. And if you do that, you will get a, uh, you know, you'll get the course, but you'll also get a free membership to Wealth Formula Network. And Wealth Formula Network is not just about crypto picks uh, by any, you know, by any uh, imagination at all. It's, 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 uh, this is a very small part of that. Uh, with Wealth Formula Network, it's really primarily about us discussing all of the other concepts that we typically invest on this show. As you know, this is a, for the most part, a real asset uh, investing show with a lot of the strategies of the ultra wealthy, et cetera. And that's what um, that's what Wealth Formula Network is all about. We had some pretty interesting call last week where we were talking about the concepts of equity stripping and you know, doing liens on your own properties so that you can protect. I mean, it's these really advanced asset protection strategies. If that stuff appeals to you, you're going to love it as well. So check that out. Again, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. We actually uh, just changed that up a little bit so that you can um, you can you can now do that as a 12 month uh, uh, payment schedule. So it makes it a lot easier as well. 
But um, anyway, it is a fantastic community, uh, and you get to enjoy the collective intelligence for our members as well. Uh, We have a forum, as I mentioned. uh, We're about to add an app, and we're also going to have biweekly. We also have biweekly phone calls as well. So it's a great opportunity to help you grow your wealth and spend time with like-minded individuals. Um, And so hopefully we'll see you there. And again, uh, it's been great talking to Mance today. I want to thank him and uh, the Hashgraph group there at Swirls for uh, coming on to Wealth Formula podcast this week. And that is it for me. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.